Genesis 39, uh, just a brief recap of where we've been. Uh, three main characters we've been looking at over the last several months in Genesis. Abraham, when we think Abraham, we want to think faith. Faith is dependence upon the Lord. That's foundational. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So that's where we start. Then we looked at Abraham's grandson, that's Jacob. Uh, with Jacob, we looked at through the lens of personal transformation, Romans 8.29. God has predestined us to be conformed into the image of Jesus. That really speaks to character and identity. Remember, Jacob got a new name, which speaks to this new identity and new character he received in uh, his relationship with the Lord. And then last week, we started looking at Joseph, who is 11th uh, of of Jacob's 12 sons. And we're looking at him through the lens of calling. For us, the scriptures, Ephesians 2.10, that God's created good works in advance for us to do. And what we see, particularly in Joseph's life, is God's ability to take Joseph from where he is and get him where God wants him to be. Really through no effort on Joseph's part, God is able to equip him, give him the skills that he needs, and get him in the position that God needs him to be in so that he's ready to fulfill God's calling upon his life. And so we'll continue to look at that. Last week, uh, we looked at Genesis 37 and Genesis 38. We're never, ever going to talk about Genesis 38 again, so you can purge that from your mind. Genesis 37... With Joseph, what we looked at was this idea of hostility uh, because he was his dad's favorite and his dad made it very plain that he was his favorite. And then uh, Joseph had these two dreams. When he's 17 years old, he has these two dreams. And in the dreams, his brothers bowed down to him. That created hostility with his older brothers and they sell him into slavery. And that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 39. Joseph has been sold into slavery and his dad thinks he's dead. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave Joseph success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in Potiphar's eyes and became Potiphar's attendant. Potiphar put Joseph in charge of his household, and Potiphar entrusted to Joseph's care everything he owned. From the time he put Joseph in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. So pretty straightforward. Potiphar, he's the chief of the guard. That was He would have been in the elite, whatever the inner circle is. That would have been Potiphar. He had direct access to Pharaoh, not very many people had that. So when you're thinking about Joseph running his house, it's not he's not running your house. He's running an estate. He's responsible for everything that's going on in the fields. He's responsible for everything that's going on in the home. All of the servants are answerable to him. It's a massive responsibility for anyone, particularly for a foreign slave, to have. Very unusual. But Potiphar has seen the way God is blessing Joseph. He might not know that it's God, Blessing Joseph, but he knows everything Joseph touch, touches is turning to gold. It's making Potiphar money, and so Potiphar continues to elevate and promote Joseph. So he's running everything. Think of him as the, the COO. He's running everything that is Potiphar's. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house, Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. No one is greater in the house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? 
And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day, Joseph went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that Joseph had left his cloak in her hand and run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. That's Potiphar. Then she told Potiphar this story. The Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Potiphar took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So pretty straightforward. Potiphar's wife comes on to Joseph. He resists her repeatedly. This probably goes on for years uh, that, sh- that he's in this house. Long period of time that she's propositioning him. He continues to say no. At one point, they're in the home alone together. She's very aggressive, reaches for him. He runs away. She's humiliated, and so she falsely accuses him of rape. Potiphar is livid. He says he burns with anger. It's actually a miracle they didn't kill Joseph. He owned Joseph. Joseph is a slave, and he could have killed him without any repercussions. And most likely, in most scenarios, that would have happened. Probably the grace of God that Joseph is thrown in jail. Maybe Potiphar knew his wife wasn't quite as innocent as she was playing out to be. I don't know. But Joseph is spared, and he's thrown into the king's prison. And just so you know this, but just to be clear, there's no judicial system. He doesn't get a lawyer. He doesn't get Miranda rights. He doesn't have a trial. He's in jail until he dies. Or someone really important says, hey, let him out. And the only person who he knows who's really important is the guy who threw him in jail. So that's Joseph's fate at that point. As far as he knows is I'm going to die in this prison for something that I didn't do. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So that's a bookend. The same thing that happened in Potiphar's house happens in jail. God is with Joseph. Everything Joseph touches turns to gold. It says God gives him success in everything he does. So everything Joseph does is is blessed. The warden notices it, and he elevates him. So Joseph is now running the prison. He's in charge of all the people, and he's in charge, it says, of everything that's done there. So he's in charge of the people and of the activity of the prison. Again, you can kind of see him as the COO. So... Two things from this story. Again, it's pretty straightforward. We'll see the, the way all of this wraps up next week. So what we'll focus on today, two things. One, the nature of temptation. And then two, we'll look at the trajectory of Joseph's life. First, the nature of temptation. That's what chapter 39 is all about. It's a temptation story where Potiphar's wife is, is trying to get Jacob, or excuse me, get Joseph uh, to sin. It's sexual sin, and so that's the way we're going to go about it. Let me give you a couple of disclaimers. One, for some of you, this is in your history. This is the past for you. You've struggled in this area. You've sinned in this area, but it's done. You've asked God to forgive you. You're forgiven. You've confessed to your spouse or whoever. You've confessed to a couple of other people. You've been healed. You've repented. You're moving in a new direction. You do not need to feel guilty. Like, hear me. 
We talked last week about this. Genesis 38. God is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of what you've done. And you don't need to be ashamed either. If you've prayed, if you said God, if you've confessed to the Lord, it's forgiven. The thing for you is to live that way. Isaiah says God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's true for you today. It says he blots out our transgressions so he doesn't even remember them anymore. That's true for you today. He doesn't look at you as stained. He doesn't look at you as broken. He doesn't look at you as damaged. Sexual immorality is not the unforgivable sin. It does not disqualify you from relationship with God, and it does not disqualify you from service in the kingdom at all. That's what we looked at last week. If this is in your past, leave it there. You don't need to bring that into today. And any sense of anxiety or condemnation that you feel is not from the Lord. It's from the enemy. He's trying to get you to live out of your past when God, God's not there. Forgiven, healed, and I, I'm encouraging you. Live out of the new identity that you have as a son or daughter of God. Pure, holy, spotless. If this is something that you are currently wrestling with, different scenario, that feeling that you have is conviction. It's not condemnation. And that's the Lord saying, wake up, wake up. Don't play around with this stuff. It's what we talked about last week. What's done in secret is proclaimed from the rooftops. Nothing stays secret. And you don't, this is not something you can deal with on your own. You don't need, again, I don't want you to feel guilty, but I want you to feel as convicted and say, I need help. Somebody help me. And we'll help you. I've talked with many people, many families who wrestle with this. This is not, it's not, by any stretch, does this have to ruin your family. For some people, that's a lie of the enemy. If they knew, then they'd leave me. I'm telling you, I've seen it time and time again. God can redeem and he can restore. So hear this. If this is you and you're currently wrestling with this, it's conviction. I don't want you to leave heavy. I want you to recognize this is an opportunity for you to be forgiven and to be healed. So looking at this temptation real quick. Let's see that, please, Mark. The temptation itself, it's continuous day after day. Much temptation is, I would say, particularly when it comes to sexual sin, there's a relentless nature to it. Sometimes we live under this false assumption that if we were only more righteous or if we were only more holy, then we wouldn't be tempted. That is not true. Temptation comes from the outside. It has nothing to do with your righteousness. It has nothing to do with your holiness. Now, it needs something to grab onto within you. But temptation comes to us from outside. It's continuous. It's subtle yet progressive. That's the most important thing for us. Occasionally, it's brazen. That's when she grabs his cloak. That's rare. And for most of us, we're not, that's not the place where we're going to trip up. If you're walking down the street and somebody walks up to you and says, hey, come sleep with me, most of you are going to say no. And it's not going to be hard for you to do that. You're going to turn and you're going to walk away. For, mo- for us, the, the key is that second piece. Temptation is subtle yet Progressive in, in verse 10, it's a very interesting phrase. What Potiphar's wife asked Joseph to do is come lie beside her. The euphemism for sex is come lie with me. And what she says is come lie beside me. I think what she's trying to get him to do is say yes to something that's less objectionable. So then she's kind of softening him up. 
once she gets him next to her, then it'll be easier for her to kind of finish the deal. I think that's what she's doing, and that's very common, particularly in the area of sexual sin. Again, most of us, we don't step from where we are into immorality. It's a bunch of little yeses along the way, a bunch of little compromises along the way. And then the step into immorality, it's not a leap anymore. It's just a natural next progression in this relationship that we've formed with somebody else. So to be clear, sex is between a man and a woman within a marriage. Anything outside of that, whether you're dating, whether you're engaged, no matter how much you love them, anything outside of that is immorality. Now, um... The Bible doesn't talk about, like, people didn't make out in the Bible. They didn't, they didn't do that. So, like, there's no people want to know what, what can we do if we're dating and engaged. In the Bible, you couldn't do anything. And so maybe that can be your standard. Easy for me to say because I'm married. But in the Bible, there was, you didn't do any of that. There, there's none of that in there. They kissed on the cheek, so you can go for that. The little French thing on each side. That's about all you can go if that's going to be your standard. So just recognize when we're talking about immorality, what it is, and the temptation towards that is progressive. It's, it's little yeses along the way. And as I compromise along the way, then at some point, 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, however many years it is down the road, I find myself in a vulnerable, vulnerable position. And because I've said yes, compromised in all of these places, then it's much more difficult for me to say no when the temptation is more brazen. And so what you see with Joseph and Potiphar's wife is really how things play out for us. And again, think long term. The enemy's very patient. He's been around for thousands and thousands of years. He's not in any hurry. And so he can entice us slowly and subtly as we go. Our response, just like Joseph, firm boundaries. He said he wouldn't even be with her. He wouldn't be alone with her. He didn't want to be in the house with her by himself. He got caught one time where it was unavoidable. And bad things happen for him. Firm boundaries, and we need them as well. You need physical boundaries with people of the opposite sex, whether you're single or you're married. There need to be boundaries. If you're dating, we talked before, kind of keep it right here. That's where you want to stay. Anything below the chin, bad stuff is going to happen. All you're doing is revving up the engine, and you have to shut it down. So somebody said, you said that a few weeks ago, and now my son thinks he can make out with his girlfriend. I'm not saying that that gives you permission to make out with your girlfriend. I'm just saying... Keep it up here. Or just kiss on the cheek. That's what we'll do. If you're married, for some of us when we're married, we think, oh, I'm married, and so I can be uh, less strict in terms of how I interact with people of the opposite sex because they know I'm married, and they're married. And actually, it's not that way at all. You, you still need to have boundaries. You don't have to be like me and be afraid of touching everybody, but you have to have some. There's got to be something there for you. If you're married, you and your spouse need to agree what's acceptable and what's not. And I will tell you, for most people, it's case by case. Honestly, it is. There are people who your wife will be fine with you hugging, and there will be people they don't want you in the same room with. And that's okay. That's something for you and your spouse to work through. What's okay? Side hugs, that's it. Like, what do you want? What are the, thi- what are the things that are okay for us that aren't going to cause you to be nervous that aren't going to cause me to dishonor you or to dishonor someone else. Just as important as physical boundaries, maybe even more so, are emotional or relational boundaries. The one marriage I've seen that couldn't make it through an affair was because he had had a relationship with this woman for years. 
they had common interests, they had the same sense of humor, and he, was, he had created this entire relationship with her. And he said to me, sex is icing on the cake. That's, that's not what this is about. He loved her, and it was, he, he didn't want to go back to his wife. He developed this emotional attachment to this woman over the course of a year or more. Very important for us emotionally and relationally to say, what does this look like? What's okay for me? Again, if you're dating, you need to have these same safeguards. When are you going to tell somebody that you love them? Like, when is that okay? When are you going to share some of your deepest and darkest? It's not the first date, and it's probably not the third. What does that look like for you in terms of amount of time that you spend together if you're dating, even if you're engaged? What are the things that you're sharing with, with each other? Who's holding you accountable to that? This is stuff that you need to be thinking of on the front end before you get in the relationship. And if you know yourself to be a kind of head over heels, get swept off my feet kind of person, all the more important for you to have these things in place first or you'll justify till the cows come home why those things don't apply to you in this particular relationship. There needs to be someone in your life who you've given permission to say, when I'm dating, these are the questions that you need to ask me. And if I'm not responding well, if I'm compromising in these areas, here's what you can do to me. Here's, how, here's, here's the accountability. Don't just ask me the questions. You can be my chaperone or whatever those things look like on your date as you're dating and engaged. If you're married, same thing. It's so easy with technology now to create this relational world that your spouse is not a part of. Your phone is her or his as well. They get full access whenever they want it. Email, full access whenever they want it. If you're on social media, full access whenever they want it. If that's a part of your world, if you do social media, I would strongly encourage you once or twice a month, ask your spouse to go through all your stuff. They may be, I hate doing this. They just do it for me. I need you to look at it. I want you to look at all of my interactions with everybody because it holds me accountable. I know that you're going to see it. And so that impacts what I say and who I say it to and how often I'm interacting with people. All of that stuff needs to be on the table for you in terms of the emotional and relational thing. And that's something you need to talk about with your spouse. I think it's helpful to have somebody in addition, but there needs to be clear communication there around these boundaries. And don't give yourself an excuse. Well, we work together, so it has to be this way. Or whatever those things are. There, you Figure it out. Figure it out and don't let yourself off the hook. Finally, the consequences. Joseph loses his position. Doesn't seem to work out very well for him. He's a man of integrity and he gets thrown in jail. That doesn't necessarily encourage us to be people of integrity. But he preserves his destiny. Now last week, and I just said it a minute ago, sexual immorality is not the unforgivable sin. It does not disqualify you from a relationship with God or uh, work in the kingdom. God doesn't set you aside and say, never mind, I can't use you anymore. Not the case at all. We saw that with Judah. Fully still usable by God. If you repent, if you confess and you repent and you receive that uh, forgiveness from the Lord, then he will restore you fully and completely. No dings on you at all. That's 100% true. And this is also 100% true. There are consequences to our decisions. Oftentimes those consequences are felt this way. They're horizontally. And sometimes, oftentimes, we have to bear those consequences. If Joseph had proceeded, if he had given in to Potiphar's wife, 
God still could have used him 100%. We see that with King David. He was an adulterer and a murderer, and God used him incredibly. Man after God's own heart. Ancestor of Jesus. he's He's the picture, the paradigm of what a king should be in Israel. So don't for a second think, well, Joseph couldn't have been used. He absolutely could have been. And most likely he would have gotten killed before he had a chance because Potiphar would have killed him. There are consequences, and both of those things are true, that you're never disqualified, and there are consequences to your actions, and both of those things are hold together. That's why what Joseph did was so important. God's trying to form a people, and those people are formed biologically. That's why I think we see so much sexual immorality in Genesis. It's what the enemy's trying to do. He knows God's trying to form a people through Abraham, and those people are going to come biologically. And so if I can mess up with that, if I can mess with that piece... I can undermine what God's trying to do. We saw that with Abraham and Hagar, with Ishmael. How, God, how the enemy can wreak havoc when people are not maintaining proper sexual boundaries. And so it mat- or, Joseph, in saying no, he preserved his destiny in a lot of ways. And so again, I want to encourage you with both of those things. So that's kind of microcosm what's going on with this temptation. If this is something that's in your past, move on. If it's something that you're wrestling with currently, please find the courage to reach out. Call me. Text me, grab me, do something and we'll we'll figure it out together. I'll help you. I'll do the best I can. I can connect you to people. We can figure this thing out. You don't have to stay locked up in this moving forward. Now we're going to step out Trajectory. I was thinking about Joseph. So Joseph's 17. He's, he kind of peaks at 17 in a lot of ways at this point in his life. He's a favored son. He's got this position of authority in his dad's house. He's obviously his dad's favorite. He's got this fancy robe. His brothers don't like him. But everything else seems to be going his way. Then he has these two dreams. And in these dreams, God says, you're going to be the best in your family. They're all going to bow down to you. And from the moment he has those dreams, everything starts falling apart. His brothers get angry with him and they throw him in a pit and they sell him into slavery. So now he's in Egypt, he's in a foreign land, he's got no hope of being rescued, he can't run away, it's too far. And so he starts working, he starts doing his thing, God blesses him, he's promoted, maybe he's thinking, all right, I I guess this is my life, I'll make the best of it. This is over the course of years. Probably seven, eight years after he's been sold into slavery. And he's got this woman who continues to come on to him. And he's doing his best to keep her at bay and fulfill his duties. He's got no options. He can't go talk to her husband. There's nothing for him to do. He's just kind of managing the best he can. And they have this blow up this one day where she comes at him strong and he resists. And she's got his coat and she lies about him. Potiphar explodes and throws him in jail. And what he's thinking, I think, in that moment is, I'm done. This is it for me. I'm never, my parent, my dad thinks I'm dead. So there's no, there's no help coming. Even if help could come from that way, it's not coming that way. There is no, there's no judicial system. I don't have an appeal. There's not going to be a trial. The only hope for me to get out is for someone in power to get me out. And the only person I know in power is the guy who put me in. And so he's looking. He's probably at this point. 26, 27 years old, somewhere in there. It's been nine or ten years since he had those dreams. And I think he's at the bottom of the barrel. This is kind of the picture I have of what he probably perceives his trajectory, the course of his life, since he had those dreams. It's gone from great to bad 
the terrible. And he, I, I don't think there's got, there can't be much hope in him when he's looking around. He's, if he's remembering those dreams, he doesn't exactly understand how are these things going to be fulfilled. What does it actually look like? But I don't know that you could be farther away than he is. He's in the wrong country. He has no interaction with his brothers at all and hasn't for, again, most likely a decade. No prospects of ever seeing them again. So this idea of whatever it means for them to bow down to him is not happening at all. But then there's God's perspective, and it's different. What I think is when God calls Joseph at 17, he sees a shepherd in Canaan, because that's what he is. And then when Joseph is sold into slavery, I don't think God did that. I think he just took advantage of the circumstances. I think what God says is, I got him in the right country now. Now he's at least in Egypt, and that's where I need him. And God elevates him. He's running this house. Hey, if you're going to run an empire, you've got to learn some management skills. You're not going to learn them as a shepherd. And so he's learning them in Potiphar's house. And then he gets thrown in jail. And again, I don't think God had anything to do with that except maybe preserving Joseph's life from being killed. But now Joseph's in jail. And for him, he's at the pit. He's at the lowest place. And I think God says, oh, you're getting so close. Now you're in the prison where all Pharaoh's prisoners are. That's where all the people who know Pharaoh, that's where they are. So you're not only getting skills running this prison, you're also rubbing shoulders with people who know the guy. You think you're a million miles away. You're actually just one phone call away from fulfilling your destiny. I've got you in the right country. No, I've got you in the right city. I've got you learning the right stuff. We'll look at the fulfillment of this next week. But what this made me think about was this idea of trajectory was, do you know what yours is? Do you have any idea what God is doing in your life? If you're married, do you know what he's doing in your family? If you have influence in your business, do you know what he's doing there? Where your kids are in school, do you have any idea what God is doing in your kids' school? Or what he's doing in your community? Have you spent any time trying to think that through? If God is always at work, which he is, he's always trying to advance his kingdom, which he is, then for me, one of the questions is, God, what are you doing now? What are you doing today in my life? And how can I cooperate with you in that? If the enemy's job description is stealing, killing, and destroying, that's what it is, John 10, 10, then if I know what God's trying to do, then maybe I can be aware of how the enemy's worked. We just looked at that. I think that's one of the reasons you see so much sexual sin in Genesis is the enemy's trying to undermine this idea of forming a people. He knows what God's trying to do. God said it. I'm trying to form a people. And the enemy's trying to undermine that. He can't come straight at God. He's got to go in through the side door. And that's what he's trying to do. Are you aware? Not a demon under every rock. But do you know what God's trying to do in your life, in your family, in your business, in your kids' school, in your community? Whatever the places are that you call home, are you aware? Look, Brandon and Nancy are sitting there. I know them well. So Brandon and Nancy have four kids. And I could say to Brandon, he runs his own business. Do you know what God's doing in your life personally? You know what God's doing in your life, in your family. What's he doing among you six? What's he doing at Gaskins? Do you have any idea? And he runs it so he can kind of do what he wants at Gaskins. He doesn't work for a big corporation where he can't maneuver. Do you know what God's doing at Gaskins? Nancy homeschools. Kids are at Cornerstone, excuse me. And Do you know what God's doing at Cornerstone and how things are working there? Those types of questions. Do you spend any time working through that? A couple of things that you can think through. I want to encourage you to do that this week. First thing is ask. Ask God, plain and simple. God, what are you doing? That's it. What are you doing? And then find somebody who loves you and loves God and ask them, 
What do you see in me? Brian, and I'll pick on him again. We eat once a week. And so he can say to me, you've been listening to me talk. What do you hear from me? What's coming out of my mouth? Do you see any themes or threads? Is there anything that you're picking up on? You know what's going on with us. Do you see what God may be doing? I might not have anything, but I may. Who are those people in your life who you can ask? What do you see? Do you, are you noticing anything? If it's, I'm looking at Christy. Her kids go to the uh, same school as ours. They go at Marietta Middle and Westside. And so she may ask Misty, hey, what do you think's happening at the middle school? Do you, is there anything going on there? Just trying to get information from people who love you and love God. Pay attention. This is the hardest thing. It's easy to ask. And then most of us just keep going. We're so busy spinning plates and keeping all the balls in the air. We don't even think about, unless God answers us right then and it's super powerful and clear, we're done. We're in the car. And it's not till it comes around again that we ask. Pay attention. This is super difficult, but so important. Where are you frustrated or restless? Could very well be that's where God's working. Are you frustrated or restless at work? He may be moving you out of that. If you're married, are you frustrated in your marriage? He's not moving you out of that, but he may be saying, work on it. Some things that we need to do there. You feel like, man, I might be done with this place. I'm not really my life right now. I just, I, yeah, I can't see me doing this for 20 more years, the way I'm doing it. I want to be married, or I want this to be, I'm just not, I can't see this being it for me. Press into that. Frustration. Is there anything that you're curious about now that you normally weren't? Is something that's new to you? I want to learn Spanish. I'm interested in this country. This justice issue is kind of stirring in my heart, and that's not been the case for me. That could be God kind of stirring up a new thing in you. Pay attention. Coincidences. Look back over the last couple of weeks, maybe a month. Are there some, wow, I can't believe I ran into that person. Type things. Again, picking on Brandon. Three people say to him, I think you should, have you considered male modeling? Then maybe he would say, hey, I should, I should shift careers and maybe I need to get out of the engineering business. He has good hands. He could be a hand model. I don't know. That's the negative if you come to the welcome reception, then I will know your name and you could get. Is there anything like that for you? I was telling the guys at nine, this is a story, and this is me not paying attention. Misty and I, a few weeks ago, we were eating before our small group. We're over there at Willie Ray's, and we were driving from Willie Ray's here. That is not environmentally friendly, but we were driving from (laughs) Willie Ray's to here in an SUV. And what Misty said, she said this. What do you, where do you think, what, where do you think Kurt McNiff is? He's a friend of ours. We went to college together, and we thought he was in Spain. The last we talked to him, we talked to him once in the past. Uh, eight or probably five to seven years. We've talked to him once. And the last we heard was he and his family were moving to Spain. And they were going to kind of set up shop there. And I don't know what made her think of that. But she just said, I wonder what's happening with Kirk McNiff. And I promise you, we were turning left at um, Prest, across from Marietta Pizza. And Kirk McNiff walked across the street. And so we called him over and talked to him. And I didn't pay attention. I'd done anything with it. But what are the ch- Like, that's not a coincidence, is it? That she happens to say... I wonder what's happening with Kirk McNiff. We think he lives on the other side of the world and he's walking across the street. He doesn't even live in Marietta. It's, do you have any of those? 
I need to pay attention and say, God, what is that? I didn't. I went to my small group. and kind of went on with my life. I need to circle back with him. Do you have anything like that where you would say, gosh, it's odd that I've run into this person who I haven't seen in a long time. Or I have several people who are asking me the same type things or that type of coincidence is what some people might call it. I may say is the Lord trying to get your attention. And then the last thing is explore. If you're a risk taker, this is awesome. If you're not, this can be scary. Those things, those areas of frustration or those areas of interest or those coincidences. Explore those. Press into those a little bit. Try Kick the tires. Take some steps. See if anything comes of it. If you're feeling frustrated in your current work situation, maybe you put out some flyers and see what's out there. If you're wondering, hey, I don't know, maybe God's moving me into another area. Why don't you check out what would it look like to move and to, to relocate? If you're frustrated in your marital state, singleness, maybe you try to, all right, what does it look like for me to try to meet some people? Maybe I'm put myself out there in some ways or kind of put myself in a position where I can bang into some other folks who may be looking to get married. That type of thing, explore. For many of us, we kind of shut down there. We want God to gift wrap it and put, in our, put it in our living room. It doesn't work that way often. He wants us to stretch our legs, exercise a little faith, take some risk. And so my encouragement to you is, is to think this through. Talk this through with somebody who loves you and loves the Lord. Ask God, what are you doing? Pay attention. Are there some areas where you would say, hey, God might be putting his finger there. And then explore those things and see what comes of it. Let's pray. So we've got two completely different things here in a lot of ways. One, this whole idea of sexual immorality. Again, if that's in your past, I want you to hear me again say, God is not ashamed of you. And you don't need to be ashamed of you either. Humility is agreeing with God. And what I'm asking you to do here this morning is to agree with God that you are forgiven that that sin is removed from you as far as the east is from the west, that it's been blotted out by the blood of Jesus, and he doesn't even remember it any longer. That you are pure, that you're holy, that you're spotless, that you're chosen. That's, that's not me. That's what the New Testament says about you. He makes all things new. And if that's in your past, then leave it there. And I want you to walk out of here with your head up. Not because of any, not proud of what you've done, but thankful for what he has done. If that's a current struggle for you, please ask for help. Confess to the Lord and he'll forgive you. Confess to one or two other people so that you can be healed. Repent, walk in a new direction and receive. Ask God, what's next for me? How do you want me to walk this out? And then shifting over. Do you know what God's doing in your life? That's not a, I don't want you to feel that as a heavy thing, but as an exciting thing. I want you to hear God's at work in your life. He doesn't take days off. He never sleeps. He's constantly working to advance his purposes in your life, in your family, in your business, in your school, in our community, and in this world. He is always at work. Do you know what he's doing? If you don't, 
Let's spend some time and try to figure it out. Let's ask. And let's pay attention. So God, my prayer for the men and the women in this room is that we would know. God, I pray that we would know what you're up to so that we could cooperate with you more fully, so that we could recognize the works of the devil and that we could resist those in places where he's kind of snuck in and he's stealing and killing and destroying. And most likely, he's killing us softly. It's subtle and it's slow and we don't even notice it. God, would you expose his work in our hearts? Would you expose his work in our homes and in our families and the places that we care about? Would you expose his work? And then would you destroy them? That's what you said you came to do, Jesus, was to destroy the works of the devil. And we pray that you would do that. And God, my prayer for the men and women in this room is that they could run fast. That they could run fast after everything that you have for them. There would not be hesitation. There would not be distraction. There would not be wondering. There would just be this, go, go. feel like we have a room full of thoroughbreds. And many of us, we're just, we're not running. We're not running. And you're made to run. So God, whatever we need, whatever clarity we need, we need courage that we need, if there's anything that needs, we need to be set free from, God, I pray today and this week and as we look at Joseph that you would do that work in us so that we could run in Jesus name Amen we'll have ministry teams here up in the corner we'll pray with you about anything that you have going on anything I said stirred something in you um, we'd love to pray with you and Bo will dismiss us in about two minutes